Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. go with episode number eight of the principles of performance podcast i am your host eric degatti along with my partner in crime mike perry and we have been lucking out and uh getting this thing off the ground with landing some some great guests and this guy is certainly one of them uh he is a legend in the field mr lee taft is joining us he's known to, to most people as a speed guy and he was one of the original speed guys uh been been doing this for about 30 years and most of his time has been spent teaching multi-directional speed to all ages and abilities and um doing this all over the world and countless hours of mentoring up and coming sports and performance trainers uh myself i'll, I'll throw myself in there and many of who have gone into the profession and made big impacts themselves um and he's since 89, he's taught a foundation of movement beginning with youngsters to young amateur athletes all the way up to the pros, quicker, faster, stronger. His, his philosophy is based on his one of his most notable quotes is learning athletic movement correctly from the start is the foundation to athletic success. And um, he speaks at numerous strength and conditioning and performance events around the world and has produced tons of instructional videos, some of uh, some of which I've, I've been a, a, a proud purchaser of um and he's written several books in addition to all his different programs and and so uh uh it is our honor to have mr lee taft with us this morning yeah uh, thank you guys no i appreciate it so much i've been looking forward to this and um, i'm uh, really happy for you guys and your new podcast your show because it's going to be impactful for uh so many people and i'm honored to be a guest so thank you I appreciate it. I, I think I, cause I, I date myself regularly here. And I think the first way I came across your work is going back to the old sportspecific.com CD series, uh, yeah. which we'll have to explain to some of our listeners what a CD is, Mike. <laughs> uh, but that's when you had I to know, have this right? round disc that would skip all the time if you didn't stay completely still when you listen <laughs> to it. But um, So we're going to cover a lot of ground today. And I'm, and I'm super excited because we're going to go in a couple different directions. But but, you know, being tagged the speed and agility guy, and 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 now there's you know a lot in the semantics of that. Like, I want to know from the guy, like, what does speed mean to you? And I know that changes based on the athlete, the sport, the position. But like, if you had to give the definition of speed in, in an elevator speech, what does that actually even mean? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a really good. And you know, it's so funny. In all the years that I've been on a lot of shows, nobody's ever actually asked that specific question and that's really where it starts isn't it i mean that's the you know the foundation of what we learn but really to me speed is the ability to be able to make plays uh very very quickly because if we define speed it's different than quickness because quickness is kind of like the ability to you know jump back and forth or you know change our directions or whatever or, or be very very uh, quick in small spaces 
Well, speed has that quality, but typically speed is, can I beat you to a play? Can I, can I make a play because my speed is better than yours? And that means the opponent I'm going against, or can I get to the ball quick enough if I'm playing tennis or, or you know, against an opponent that way? So speed to me is that ability to make a play using your athleticism, being able to, to get through space really quick. And I like to use two words when I train my athletes. I want them to escape space and attack new space. And that kind of that kind of surrounds what speed is to me. You know, can I get out of current space? I don't care if you're a track athlete and you got to get a hundred meters of space, or if you're a volleyball player and you got to get to a tipped ball, which might be, you know, three meters. And uh, can you escape and attack new space? That's an that's a really elegant and awesome way to put that. And it kind of ties in with one of the, the posts we put up this week is as I talked a little bit about coaching and cueing and um, stealing from some of Franz Bosch's work and, and yeah. kind of that 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 concept of of knowledge of process and in, in performance versus knowledge of result. And what you're talking about is is not squeeze your glutes or, or, yeah. you know, uh, tighten your calves or brace your core, that kind of stuff that we most often hear in coaching, um, where you're, you're giving a knowledge of result, right? You're trying to tell them here, this is where you are now. This is where you got to get to figure it out. And, and even going back through, um, I forget which of the series I was watching of yours going back to prepare for this and, and looking at how a lot of your coaching elements were letting people figure it out. And, and I love that kind of that elegance of, of how you coach. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what it is, it's like, you know, I have a my my initial background was phys ed. I grew up in a family of phys ed teachers and teachers in general I'm, and, uh, and husbands and wives in the family. I'm the youngest of six. And my dad did it for 44 years. And my brothers were retired now. They were coaches and phys ed teachers. And my sisters were classroom teachers. So they always used to tell me my dad, especially was like, you know, athletes, they know what they're doing. They may not be the cleanest at it right off. We can help that, but it's not like they don't know if the ball's over there, if they don't know to, you know, not go in that direction. So you just got to guide them sometimes. Just give them a little guidance. Um, if it looks really bad, okay, now we now we roll our sleeves up and we coach them, we teach them. But sometimes the the ability to let an athlete just go and be instinctive is what drives their greatest performances. Because if we create a, a, a learning process through rote memory, now they think too much. They think quickly and they think too, uh, you know, instantly go into, you know, what do I do? What do I do? Versus just go get it done. There's a task, go get it. I don't care if you mess up, but we'll fix that, but just be reactive and go get it. So yeah, it always starts there. Let the athletes go. And what a great assessment for us, right? As coaches, if you just let an athlete play, you can just take notes, take mental notes and say, okay, these are things that I consistently see that probably aren't as efficient as they can be. What a great way to get all the fluff out of the way than just to watch an athlete perform live. They just showed you their DNA. They just showed it to you right there. Now you get to go to work. So uh, I'm going to pick up where you left off. We're talking about assessment. So uh, we talk a lot about when we teach about having just simply checklists. So we want to have a checklist to say, can you at least do these things before you do these things? So tell me a little bit about like your checklist. If you're watching an athlete perform, what are some of the things that you're thinking in your head? Can they at least do this, 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 and this? What does A, B, C, D, and, and beyond look like for you? Yeah, yeah. And this is, a, this is so important for coaches to understand. 
Every single one of us have to have a model. If we have a model, I don't care if we're looking at somebody squatting, doing a goblet or a front squat or an overhead squat, whatever, or if we're watching somebody athletically move quick, like a tennis player moving from the center of the court out to a forehand. If we have a model of what movement should look like, now we can simply say, okay, they had great force application angles into the ground, which we call like repositioning. Usually it's a repositioning step. I quickly plant my foot into the ground. That drives me to the right, to my forehand. I'm a righty. So if I, if I notice that they hit the model really well, the next thing goes into my head is, do they have one of these three things? Number one is, do they have enough strength or power? Like if it's a 12-year-old who's growing, a little bit awkward because they're growing, they might lack the strength, the power to be able to hit the model exactly as I would like to see it. Number two, do they have the biomechanic ability? Like, can they actually get their arms and legs in the right positions? Can they use their arms properly to run? And can they use their legs properly? Can they create a shin angle down and back when they're trying to accelerate or, <clears throat> excuse me, or completely vertical when they're trying to sprint? And then the last one is skill acquisition. Have they had enough time, because I just exposed them to something new, to learn that? And often it's no, they haven't. If it's something new, they, they just need a little bit of time to do it. So those three things on top of the model of what a movement should look like, it lets me very quickly say, okay, there it is. There's that one. They, they didn't chase their shoulders. And that means they drove their shoulders up or they dropped them too low. They lost that angle of force application. So really simple for me to look at stuff. Oh, you know, it's been almost 35 years now of, of doing this. So it, you know, in the beginning stages, it wasn't easy. Now, I know what models of all the major seven patterns look like. I know what models of change of direction should look like. So if they're close to that, then I start looking at, is, is there a strength issue? Are they just not able to apply or resist force? Interesting. So it seems like initially at first you you just put them in a scenario and you just watch you observe and and then you start to develop and, and correct me if i'm wrong you start to develop sort of their their program and their needs based off of the initial observation yeah yeah that's it and it, it's called the reactive tier system and i developed this years ago because i always was better when i just let athletes play whether i put them into a very specific type of a tag game trying to drive uh, different scenarios and have different constraints for them or or you know getting some game film and watching them play or if I watched a practice I used to go and I'd watch like a Saturday morning practice sometimes with some of the athletes I trained and and see what they're doing and then what it did is it just allowed me to formulate you know some of the things that maybe they could work on better or just say yeah they're good for what they're playing their sport I don't need them to look like you, you know, Carl Lewis, I, you know, in sprinting, I just need them to maybe have more force to be able to be a better sprinter. But yeah, just let them go, allow the process to happen. And the reactive tier system is my way of saying, show me who you are today. Let me just see you move. Let me see what your central nervous system is bringing today. Go ahead. Let's react and move a little bit. Then it kind of gives me a cleaner idea of the, the what I call correctives. Most people call them drills. But the drills to me are, are the corrections to the actual skill we're trying to develop, the pattern. I love it. I love the fact that you you simply have a system and step one, step two, step three. And I think that's one thing that 
in general, people miss is these checklists and systems where um, they, I, I found that working with a lot of, uh, you know, coaches in general and athletes, I think that they think that they, they're so advanced that they don't need to go through those step one, step two, three scenarios. And oftentimes there's these critical things that they're missing, which is very, very elementary. But if you, if you skip steps, you may miss things and you may miss things that are incredibly important. So, um, so let me ask you this, we're going to change gear a little bit. So let's say I'm a brand new athlete and I'm coming to work with you. I'm an athlete and, or maybe I'm a team and we're coming to work with, with lead tap. What does day one look like? Yeah. So I try to get in my warm up once we get them, you know, if we're going to foam roll or whatever, we get the, the initial stuff done. But once we get them going, I try to get them through my seven patterns as quickly as, as I can. So the seven patterns are the two linear patterns are acceleration and sprinting. The two lateral are the shuffle and the lateral run. Most people call it a crossover. I call it a lateral run. Uh, the, the two retreating patterns are backpedal or a hip turn, which is a way of quickly opening our hips up to go backwards. And then the seventh one is a jump. Now we have all kinds of variations of that, right? So if, if your team that came to me was a volleyball team, well, the jumping is pretty important and there's two specific types of jumps, right? We have an approach jump like an outside hitter or a middle maybe coming off a quick slide or we have um, a uh, block, you know, where they typically jump bilaterally just off two feet very quickly. So we can assess those really, really quick. But if you brought me a track team while well, you jump, probably is going to be a one foot jump. It could be a long, a triple, a high jump, and we're going to evaluate that as well. But if I can get the athletes to go through those patterns quickly, because I have a model already with typically three major points for each one, which is really easy to identify. Once I get them through it, it just kind of says, ah, okay, every time the athlete is asked to do this particular pattern or like a lateral run or a lateral shuffle, they sway a lot or they have uh, difficulty creating some length in that lateral gait. And I see it and then I make my mental notes and then I know where to go. And here's the great thing. And this is where I don't want coaches to panic because they're like, well, Lee, that's great if you're one-on-one and you're going to adjust. But what if you got a team and not everybody has the same problem? Skill, the great thing is with these skills and these patterns is they have no bias. And they're all important to work on. And the example I always give is Steph Curry is probably 93% from the foul line. That doesn't mean he doesn't still practice foul shots. So even if I have an athlete that's really good at maybe four or five of these patterns, doesn't mean they can't review it and still practice it and still go through it so that it becomes cleaner. So the athletes in a team of 25 athletes, maybe there's five of them that are struggling majorly with uh, maybe arm action on acceleration. Everybody's going to benefit from it, but the ones who are struggling benefit more. So it doesn't hurt the team to go through those correctives as well, because to them, it's not a corrective. It's just a refinement of what they do already well. And that's just as important as the corrective. So that we can keep growing. So that's what an initial assessment looks like. We we get them in, we get them moving. I start taking notes, and then we just move forward from there. Awesome. So uh, you mentioned strength earlier, and and that was you know there's it's it's pick your poison of what the daily Twitter debate of the week is, right? And yeah. I know I think it was last week or the week before was was correlations of the weight room and and. Uh, speed. And I think someone posted, say, Hey, you know, just give me a strong kid and he'll be, he'll 
you know, he'll be fast. And I know from my experience over the years, that doesn't always match up that the kids who, who own the, 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 the record board in the weight room don't always end up being the ones who can translate it to the most speed. And there's also kids yeah. who, who look like, you know, they've never seen a weight room who, who can light it up out there, yeah. but I know strength has it, has it, has a component. And I know there's also huge variability in what that even means, right. Whether it's, yeah you know, uh, 10 sets of 10 bench press or, or we're doing all sorts of other specialized work. So tell me a little bit about your thoughts on correlations of how we get the weight room to translate into getting in and out of space. Yeah, exactly. And I think what's really important with the athletes and their, and parents, if you're dealing with younger kids, if you're dealing with a college or professional is you got to get them to understand the weight room is like a security blanket it's the chance for me to improve your health to improve obviously performance in a way that um, we can create more stability we can iron out some imbalances um, we can do many things that that aren't like you said maybe you know 10 sets of 10 and i'm trying to get your your shirt size to get bigger right i'm not that's that might be a goal for some sports and some positions in certain sports but for us what we're trying to do is tell the athlete, look at, you're already pretty quick. You move really well. Or if you're not very quick and you don't move really well, the strength training is going to provi provide the ability to produce force and reduce force, which is going to allow us to move better overall. So for the quick athlete, that explosive, just like that was me. I was small. I was always a small athlete. And even though my dad, when, you know, in the seventies, we did some garage strength training, you know, the old benches that would tip over because they're about this wide. And, and uh, we, he had me doing all that stuff, but it still wasn't the typical strength training we do now. I was just genetically gifted. He was a great athlete. My mom was a good athlete and my brothers were really, really good. So I had natural speed, but I, I wasn't going to beat anybody in a bench or a squat, you know, competition back in, uh, even in high school. But I could really, really move. But it was funny when I got into my mid-20s and I kind of was done playing college sports and I really did get into weight training. Um, it was amazing how all my other attributes went up. I, I did get faster. I jumped higher. I mean, I was able to do a lot of good things, but I treated the strength training as a way to develop my athleticism. I in the initial stages, I wasn't doing it just to get bigger and that I I wanted to produce more force. I wanted to do it really efficiently. So that's how I use the weight room. So that's what I'm telling my kids right now. Like my, I'm a head basketball coach. I just got hired, you know, about a, two months ago. And so with the boys that I have right now, you know, some of them don't like the weight room. And I'm like, has nothing to do with you setting records. All it is, is let's keep you healthy. Let's get you moving a little bit better. And let's make you more of a stable, robust athlete in case you want to go to the next level then we have you a little bit more prepared. So that's really what it is for me. Cool. So I'm going to circle back. We, we define speed, but if there's speed and there's always and agility attached to that, right? So, but they're yeah. two different, very, very different properties. So I'm going to ask you the same question again. So how do you define agility dependent on the, the, the scenario that's in front of you? Yep. Yep. So agility to me is the ability of the athlete to read the task, read the situation, read the environment, and make a decision, a quick decision, and move their feet accordingly. So if we're if we're training change of direction um, type exercises like a 505, a 510 five, a pure shuttle run, 
those are not defined as agility because the athlete doesn't have to make a decision. The decision is like a dance. A dance would be the same as change of direction. Learn the pattern, get really good at it. Right? That's the combine. But agility is that ability to read what's happening in front of you and then make the appropriate footwork decisions and patterns to be able to execute it as quickly as you can. And so that's, uh, and I've, I've heard many people say, ah, I, I just lump them all together. That's okay in your facility if you all have the common language. But if I'm sending something to you guys, an athlete of mine moved to you guys, and I said, look at, they really need to work on their agility because they're lacking reading skills. And you guys interpret that as change of direction. So you did a bunch of, you know, 555s or 505s or those are two different things. That's not what we need. And the reason they're different, agility is usually outside foot dominant when I change directions. You guys make a quick move. I'm going to plant my outside foot very quickly to redirect me. But if I'm doing a 5-10-5 or a rehearsed pattern, it's going to be inside foot, outside foot. Then we produce force and we reaccelerate. So agility has a much more dominant outside foot as its sole decelerator, which goes into reacceleration versus change of direction, which has an inside, outside. Then we do what I call pop, push, open, push, and then we take off from there. So that's the difference. And I think it's important to delineate between the two so the, i as you're saying this i have something that's stirring in my head that that is another another hot button topic so in terms of semantics so the latter is neither speed nor agility that doesn't mean that there's there's no value in a ladder and you never use it but the, you're talking about a rehearsed dance move right yeah. and you're looking down so there's no reactive component and there's not really much force being put into the ground so um, you know, I, I remember a, a, a maybe about a year or so ago, I posted something that, you know, because what I'd see a lot of times when people would sell sports specific speed and agility, yeah. you know, and, and a lot of the baseball world that I walk, work in was here's what it means. We're going to take a kid and he runs through a speed ladder and then he catches a ball. Right. And that's what they call sports. You mean specific that doesn't speed. happen in a game? They don't do that in a game? So my so my postly was running through a ladder and catching the ball doesn't make you better at it doesn't make you faster and it doesn't make you any better at catching the ball. So um, they came after the, the, the internet came after me. You would have thought I shot Santa Claus in the middle of Rockefeller center on Christmas Eve. <laughs> um, so like, where does the ladder fit in? Yeah. Yeah. So the ladder is a corrective tool, right? So when, and I use the ladder very specifically, I've had all my athletes do it for specific reasons. So let's take a very simple pattern that is common in the ladder an in, in, out, out pattern, right? I step in with two, I go out with two. In, in, out, out, in, in, out. Okay, so what we do is I have them partner up and I place a band around their waist at hip, around the hip, at hip level. I'm trying not to interfere with upper body forces yet, so we keep it at the hip level. We don't go up by the ribs. And what I do is the athlete that has the band pulls pretty strongly. So the athlete that's doing this pattern of in, in, out, out, if the band is on my right side, pulling me to the right, and let's say we're using half a ladder, and so maybe there's like 10, 10 boxes or whatever it is, eight to 10, the athlete is getting 10 opportunities 
to work on cutting with the right foot because I'm being pulled to the right so that I don't get pulled out of the lab. That right foot really plants hard. So what we do is we manipulate the band by pulling a little bit back, a little bit forward. And what it does is it forces the athlete to create a really quick repositioning that keeps them going through the drill without being pulled right off the ladder. I've used that for years and years and the athletes are like, holy cow, my right leg is smoked by the end of that. And the whole thing is because it puts, it basically unweights the left leg, even though they're touching, the right leg is the one that's stopping them. So if I see an athlete, back to the one of the original questions of like, what's my first thing I do? And I take athletes through a seven pattern. Well, if I see that they're, they're cutting or their change of direction is not real clean, the ladder is a corrective for that specific thing. I get a lot of reps on them planting that right foot, making sure they have dorsiflexion, flat foot with the weight to the ball of the foot, but heel on the ground for stability purpose and friction purposes. And then the knee angle inside the ankle, hip inside the knee, and the force going through the lead shoulder. And I know there's a lot of stuff going on there, but if we just look at the angles, if this is my ankle or my foot planting, here's my opposite shoulder. That's what we need to see when we cut or we plant. So I can re reproduce that like 10 times really fast with an athlete using the ladder. So that's how we use the ladder as a corrective not that you have to do it in a ladder, but it just keeps it pretty sequenced. And uh, that's just one example of how we would use it. But you're 100% right. It's not designed for speed, just like using a kettlebell and trying to run 100 yards. Is it, it's not designed for that, right? It, they all have their purpose. So that's how I would use a ladder. And there's a couple other versions of that. So I have another question for you, Lee. So, if, you know, you look at, you know, all the sports that require agility, right? There's so many, there's, you know, let's talk about like soccer, lacrosse, football, you've yep. got your sort of your grass turf sports, and then you've got sort of your indoor sports, basketball. Um, it could be futsal. It could be yep. uh, volleyball. When you're looking at those individual athletes in sports, do you kind of look at the scenario of in the space and say, well, you know, like basketball, smaller court, a lot of up and down, a lot of cutting, a lot of reacting versus soccer, where there's a lot more sort of linear runs, but built into those linear runs, there's, there's cutting and there's change of direction. Do you look at sort of the, the physical demands of each sport and, and change your training to sort of prepare those athletes for the hard jumping, cutting, change of direction, et cetera? Yeah. So that's your, that's how you program your off season, right? So off season, let's generalize training. So we bring a better animal to the game, right? We, let's, let's make a better athlete. Let's give them those seven patterns and all these things, let's master those the best we can. So if we were to take basketball or volleyball or badminton, short, quick type things versus that soccer, lacrosse or field hockey. So we might flip flop our approach a little bit, right? So with my basketball kids, we still sprint twice a week. During in season, we sprint once every eight days. And the reason I use sprint for volleyball, basketball, pickleball, you know, all these short, quick type sports is because of the benefits that sprinting brings to the body. It builds a great elastic, stiffer ankle position, trains that Achilles tendon, trains that lower leg, uh, trains the connection of the hip and the core. That's extremely valuable for health and for performance for the basketball, volleyball player. Even though they don't sprint, they're going to jump higher if they sprint better. It's gonna give them that resiliency off the ground. Now let's take our soccer player who sprints all the time or a cornerback 
in football who has more sprint demand or a safety, someone like that. Let's get them a little bit more of this tight, close quarter change of direction that happens in basketball into a degree in volleyball. Definitely happens in badminton and some of those sports there. And let's give them that benefit. So that becomes more of the preseason, right? Now we're getting them ready for their season. The offseason, let's all do the same. Let's just be better athletes. Let's master movement. And then we get into the season, or excuse me, the preseason. Now I got to prepare you so you can play your position in your sport better. And then when we get in season, let's just keep refined on everything. Let's reduce over volume. Let's not be afraid of intensity as long as we're controlling volume. And then we want to get you ready for that postseason if that's possible for your program. So that's really what I look at. Keep it basic, keep it simple, and keep athletes moving freely. I'm over here, like writing as many notes as possible because I'm like, selfishly, I can't wait to listen to this myself and get the gold out of it. But um, so let me ask you this, Lee. So what are some of the fundamental elements and principles that you feel cross over to all basic athletic movements? So force production is a critical one. And we, we obviously talk about that in the weight room, but think about my ability to accelerate really quick, right? Somebody, somebody uh, drop shots and, and I have to go get a drop shot or in basketball, a loose ball. And all of a sudden I change and I go, the ability to produce force really, really quickly on an angle to go in that direction is universal. Whether you're playing cricket, netball, you know, Gaelic games, all these sports we don't really hear about here. Or we go to our traditional baseball, softball, volleyball, you know, the, the, the sports that we hear in America. Force production, the ability to produce that quickly and find those angles is universal. The ability to be able to reposition your feet. And what that means for the listeners is if I were standing on the baseline of a basketball court and my feet are parallel, both toes are on the baseline, but I'm in a defensive stance. So I'm wide, about as wide as shoulder width. And all of a sudden the coach blows a whistle. And when I go to take off, my feet, one of them repositions behind me. Some people call that a false step. I've called it a plyo step for 30 years because it's plyometric and it's a natural um, uh, part of the nervous, central nervous system, fight or flight for, for me to escape space right, and protect myself. So those are very fundamental. We can practice those. We can drive those through that tier one type of reactive training. Those are very fundamental across the board. I don't care what sport you play, those are gonna happen. They happen at different degrees, certain positions in certain sports, you might negate it a little bit because of the rules of the game, but those are really, really fundamental. I think every athlete has to develop a solid gait cycle, both linearly, laterally, and retreating. So a shuffle gait cycle, is very different than a running gait cycle because my back leg always is my back leg. My front leg is always my front leg, but the ability to go through that gait cycle and protect the hip, develop the adductor, develop the abductors, develop the calcaneus ability to proprioceptively feel the ground when you're shuffling, that stuff gets overlooked, but that's a protective thing for my linear athletes like cross country and track. So we make them train laterally. But for the basketball player who lives laterally a lot, it's such a healthy pattern for them to make sure they're good at. So if we look at that, producing force, being able to have gait cycles in all directions, backwards is a huge gait cycle because if I backpedal like a cornerback, we call that a compact gait cycle. 
I'm short, right? I compact, I bend my knees quite a bit. So now I'm training my quads to communicate with my Achilles and my soleus and my lower leg. So I'm protecting the ankle joint, really critical. Now, when I backpedal tall, like a basketball player getting on transition to the first guy back, you know how they backpedal or long backpedals. Now my gastroc in the front of my hip, my hip flexor region, they communicate really well together. And so we're developing just a holistic movement of an athlete. So I'm looking at the at the picture behind you over your shoulder there. Like we got the, the skeleton. We look at that hip and how this, how this, you know, nothing is just straight. Everything is like angles and all that. So the more we get them through these gait cycles, that functional foundation you're talking about of overall athleticism crosses the board regardless of the sport you play. Now you bring more to the table. And that's my goal. Cool. So there's a principle that, that I'm thinking of, as you're saying all this, that I've always talked about with my athletes that I don't hear a, a lot of people, or at least enough people, I think, talk about, and I want to get your thoughts on it, is the element of having some level of rhythm. And, and I always joke my athletes that if I, I if I'm going to write a book on speed, I'm going to call it rhythm and glutes. Right. And there's two things you see in really, really athletic people and that they have some level of rhythm, like the, the most athletic guys always can dance. Um, and that they have to have some glutes. I always say, if you see, see somebody with a flat ass, they're either the referee or a, a spectator. So um, where does rhythm fit into all this stuff in terms of getting uh, people to understand that there has to be some sort of uh, elegance and, and rhythm to their movement? Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's, there's really multiple levels to that. If you think about it, because we have the rhythm of, let's say, let's just take the easiest skill to, to generally see is sprinting. We're just running. Okay. We're just running straight down the track. Well, there's a rhythm to that, right? It, you can't be herky-jerky and be a good sprinter. You can't have like, sometimes my arm goes here and other time it goes here. It, there's rhythm to the cycle, to the gait and everything we're doing. So, so that's one of it. But there's also rhythm to on-field, on-court athletic movement, which means sometimes my speed needs to be sub-maximal to make a better play. Sometimes it needs to be maximal. Sometimes it needs to be uh, uh, like um, surrounded with hesitations. Like I go, then I slow, then I go, you know, to, to deceive a defender. So rhythm is that ability to be able to move really, really smoothly, have some grace to the, to the action. And that falls into body and spatial awareness. That's really critical. And, but if we understand there's rhythm to the joints and the arms as we go and the legs, but then there's rhythm to how we change pace and change speeds to be able to kind of uh, deceive an opponent. That's really important as well. Or if we're the defenders, we have to be able to have that ability to put the, you know, the brakes on enough to be able to maintain orientation of position then be able to accelerate again or decelerate or change direction. So yeah, that's that's really important. And Eric, this is why I teach like a 180 series because a 180 series takes a lot of grace. It takes a lot of rhythm of movement. So if I'm running at you guys straight and then all of a sudden I turn and I start backpedaling in the same direction, there's a whole series we have called a 180 series and that develops that body awareness, spatial awareness, but my ability to have rhythm of my stride and not all of a sudden when I turn, I fall over, you know, and I go down. That's part of rhythm and coordination and balance. It all fits in that same family. Awesome. I'm loving all this. And and so in our course, we always talk about that, you know, you kind of the blend of art and science in what we do and writing programs. And then with, with 
coaching speed, you know, there's a lot more science. There's a lot of tech that now is, is gotten into looking into every single measure possible um, in terms of breaking down what someone looks like. And then a lot of what you're talking about is the art of actually just coaching. And how do you kind of blend those two in 2022 with all that we yeah. have available to us? Yeah. And I think, I think the, the smart coaches look at all of it and they say kind of what Bruce Lee says, you know, use what's useful and, you know, mm -hmm. disregard what isn't useful to you. So if, if I understand enough about the science so that I can give my athletes an advantage, whether I'm using science, you know, like I'm using the technology or I'm understanding the science of movement so that I can put my athletes in better postures and positions, that's important. We have to be able to do that. I would say that's more important than having all the bells and whistles if you can't afford the bells. If you can afford them, good, go for it. And it makes your program better. That's great. But the art of it, I think, and this is what I'm seeing, especially when I had my speed academies years ago and I'd get interns, so many of them would come in and they could tell me what VO2 max was on this kid running on a treadmill. I'm like, great, well, you got 14 kids in front of you and no treadmill, now go teach them, right? That's the art. <laughs> now, can you, can you actually manage a group, recognize how they're all moving because you have a grasp of the model of that, that skill and then be able to give appropriate cueing that doesn't interfere with those who are doing it really well. So they don't hear it. And now all of a sudden they start thinking about what you just said, but it goes directly to that athlete or two that need the cue or need the feedback. That's, that's an art. Okay. That's enough. So one thing I try to always say is like the, the, the science of teaching and the science of learning tells us this, but the art of it is if I'm working with a, you know, a varsity and JV basketball team, and I got one kid keeps screwing up and I blow my whistle, I make everybody stop. And I start teaching that one thing that kid keeps doing. Well, I just instructed 20 other kids or one kid who was making the same, but everybody heard me. That's an art to coaching. That's an art to it. But the science of it is, yeah, I've got to improve him, but I need to go over to him, pull him aside, talk to him, and then get him back in here. That's the art of coaching, right? And then we just kind of be able to look at the science and what can we use? Science, like behind me, I have a jump mat. Okay, it's a $400, $500 thing. And it's not the most techie thing in the world, but it gives me readiness feedback. If I have an athlete that jumps 20 inches normally on a vertical and they come in and they give me five reps and they're like 16, 8, 16, 9, 17, well, they can't even get close. I know their readiness isn't there for today's workout if I was going to do something explosive. So that's the science that's teaching me and helping me. Now the art of it is I got to be smart enough to say, okay, let's plan B. Awesome. So, all right. Now I want to make sure we leave enough time for this because I know this is going to get, be a, a big thing. And this is as much as I wanted to, to learn everything that we've learned up to this point um, as someone who, uh, as experienced it, not only professionally, but as, as a dad and, uh, with two boys that played baseball up until college, as well as a bunch of other sports. And as someone who's coached for years and years and years in youth sports, um, the youth sports model and the whole billion dollar industrial complex that it's become, I know has become a big passion for you. So all I'm going to do right now is, is basically pull the pin and roll it under the door right with this grenade Lee, and let you go. Cause I know this has been a new passion yeah. of yours that you've been looking to, to make some, some significant changes in. Yeah, I appreciate it. And 
what's funny is, so for about 20 years or so, I've been fighting this battle, but it was kind of like with conversations with individuals and people would say to me, I had coaches and I had an AD sometimes say, oh, Lee, that's nice. That's cute. You know, I'm like, cute. go ahead, keep doing it. And I just wasn't. So I finally said, you know what? I said this to my wife. I said, get ready. You know, just get your, you know, get your uh, blinders on, you know, because it's going to come. And what I wanted to do is make people emotional. And I know it's obnoxious and it's annoying people, but you would have no idea the hundreds of private messages I get and on, on from parents, from moms or dads, or even athletes that with the emotional side of it, of where, where I've made them feel like, oh my gosh, somebody's actually listening to what I'm talking about. So that's why I'm doing it. And I know there are people who are in youth travel models that are working really well. They don't over travel. They don't overspend. They don't. And I get that. The problem is I got to blow the whole thing up or make people. Otherwise, I can't get people to understand this is what's happening. And I've mentioned this before. So I've had I've had people tell me that, you know, uh, people in the in the same family are missing funerals of a sibling or whatever because their nine year old has a travel tournament and they've missed weddings. And I've had moms and dads say, yeah, we're separating because one of us is in a hotel nine months out of the year, every weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And it's just becoming, and, and we're talking, we're not talking about like a 17 year old kid who's probably going to get signed by Duke. We're talking about a nine, 10, 11 year old who might not like that sport next week. You just don't know. And so I'm sitting here thinking, what are we doing? You know, what, what's the, and we've got the, you know, you've got the organizers that are so aggressive and, and they're making great money at it. And I never would tell anybody, hey, you can find a way to make money legally and, and uh, ethically, go ahead. The problem is we've taken what all of us grew up playing for free. When I went to the basketball courts and played with my buddies, it was free. When I wanted to play soccer and football in the park and we played kill the man, you know, and tackled each other with five towels under our shirts, that was free. We didn't have to pay for that. Now I can't even get my kid to go play because you got to pay to do all this stuff. So I'm trying to get people to understand. It's not that the industry has changed so much that we can't go back. It's that moms and dads are afraid to say no. Because think about this for a minute. All these organizers, and not is about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, I heard of a guy up in the Northwest, Washington or somewhere, ran a weekend tournament, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and grossed over a million dollars. That's how big it is right now. Okay, brought in like 900 teams. I think it was a volleyball. And that's what we're talking about. What I'm trying to say is that goes away today if all the moms and dads just say no. We want our kid to be the best they can be. We want all this, but we're not going to pay $15,000 to be on a travel team. We're not going to spend, you know, every weekend in a hotel. We want to do this. So that's what I'm trying to get them to understand. If you start saying no, then the organizers have to say, all right, well, if we want to keep this going, we got to do what they want. We got to keep it local, one day tournaments, maximum two games a day, you know, fun, you know, uh, start having talks with parents before games and say, you're aggressive, you're loud, you're gone, you're, you're gone. And if you don't leave, your team is disqualified. And and because I did that in Indiana, when I ran my little things, I just cleaned it right up. I said, we're not going to do that stuff. 
and it was funny. Everybody just kind of relaxed. They all sat back and just enjoyed the kids playing. And and I think we can get there with a certain amount of people because uh, there's tens of thousands whose moms and dads are hanging on with their fingertips on the cliff. They're ready to fall off because 77% of parents right now are reallocating income so their kids can play a sport. So lots more to this, but what I'm trying to do is get people to understand youth sports doesn't have to be the way it is. We've made it this way. Well, we can undo it. And if we just get communities and schools and rec centers to all get in together and not make the money for the organizers, make the money for the schools and the rec centers and then let them take the money so they don't charge us much to get in. Let them take the entry fees and the people walking in the doors and all the concessions, keep the money, uh, the, the amounts low and let them have a budget that helps them get better equipment and stuff. Now, all of a sudden, we're playing these tournaments for maybe a couple hundred dollars for a team versus 550 to get a sixth grade team into a tournament of which they're a bunch of low level kids. So anyway, you can tell I can get going on this. Let's keep it. Let's keep them going. Let's keep I'm going to keep I'm going to keep them going because I've been living in this world and as, as a youth volunteer coach. So I've been doing it mostly on the baseball side. And so I don't know if it's different. And I want to get your feedback on because I know you're a lot involved in, in basketball. And with the irony that I'm finding with this is one, it's not, it's not bringing kids to the sport, it's driving them away. Um, you're just seeing that it's, it's really become a world of haves and have nots. And it's, and it's, and it's, and it's really not also developing better players because there's not a development system. So like the example I always talk about with, with baseball, and and I'd love to get your thoughts on how it, and, and what you see in other sports is that you have your rec leagues, your little league type of thing, your town league, and then you have your travel. Now, at least where, where I've coached is that the because there's a shortage of fields, um, the only way that travel teams could get access to the fields was to, through the rec program. So what now you have to do is if you want to play travel, they also make you sign up for rec, right? Because that's the way, because if not, you wouldn't have any kids playing rec. Now what I have is a team of players that half of the team like has never played, like they show up with the glove with the price tag on it and, yeah. and the 33 inch wood bat for the sixth grade kid. And they've never played a day. And then I have another kid who's been playing year round who throws 75 miles an hour and hits absolute rocket. So now when I go to coach that rec team, I can't put that new kid in the infield because he's going to get killed. He's going to actually get hurt. Um, And so I got to stick him in the outfield, which is boring enough. Now, on top of that, we were forced to play two to three games a week, but yet there's no time or availability for practice. So now this kid, I've never been able to teach him anything. So what's he going to happen? If he's lucky, he'll maybe get a fly ball in the outfield, which he has no chance of catching because yeah. I never got a, never got a chance to teach it to him. And then he's going to get up against the kid who throws 70 miles an hour because the other rec coach wants to win the plastic trophy. Yeah. And now he's going to strike out three times. So I struck out three times. I got one ball hit to me and I dropped it. This stinks. I'm not playing anymore. Right. And so if we were, if we were to say, look, why don't we just play one game a week? It might mean a little bit more. It might actually be a lot better game, but then the other two days, let me actually practice. So I can hit that kid 20 fly balls and he can actually see 20. He can take batting practice a couple of times a week and he may actually have some success and he may actually be better. And to your point of coaching earlier, it's more reps for the, for the good kids as well. So they're going to be more developed and polished when, if they do play at a higher level. So you know, that's what I've seen in baseball. Is, is that a silo or is that what's happening in most sports? It is. That's what's happening in most sports. And the thing is, to your point of playing one game a week, so we could say, and this is, this is anything, right? We all know this. 
we just have to create the system, the model, and it'll work if we if we work at it. And we all have to be adult enough to have the fluidity to say, okay, this isn't working like we thought. Let's change it. And let's do it right now while we're here at practice. Let's change how we do this. And we have to have the, the ability to do that, or we just keep bumping our heads into each other. So for example, your situation, you got these, these different degrees of talent on the same team. Well, you got one game a week, but during those other two practices, or if you get three practices or whatever, you can do a ton of small-sided games. So for example, you're hitting these, these ground balls or pop flies to these kids. Well, let's make it a game. And we can start making games for like your lower level talented kids versus your higher level talent kids. You can say, hey, the higher level kids, you're gonna catch the ball and that gives you a point. So if you catch, you know, 13 out of 20, you got 13 points and the other kids go and you do a bunch. And then with the smaller kids who aren't as good is if you get a glove on, if you get near it, like it's a bullseye, if you're close to it, you know, you get one point if you're close. If you catch it, you get three. But they're scored against themselves. And that's just an example of we can make it fun. The skills getting challenged more by the kid because there's a little bit of competition. there, a little bit of fun to it. And we make sure they understand. Listen, we're not trying to win trophies. We're not trying to win. You know, I beat that kid. We're just trying to improve, but let's have some fun at it. Let's see who can score 20 points today or which team. But teams out there, and every time somebody catches, you know, they score for their team. And so we can do a bunch of stuff like that. And that's what we do with basketball. And uh, volleyball is big into that, too. They play these small-sided games. So the kids get the competition that they want, the fun that they want. But yet you and I get to instruct the skill of it, the part of it. And that's a trick I used in phys ed for years is I didn't stop them and talk to them all the time. I let them play and I blow the whistle for like 15 seconds. Hey guys, think about this when we're playing soccer and use the inside of your foot on this type of pass and whatever, ready, go. And then I would blow the whistle again when I needed to, that way they played the whole time. So Eric, to your point in baseball, baseball, because of the danger of it, like if I play a, a lesser talented basketball player against a better, yeah, I mean, they could get bumped into a run over, but baseball, you could catch it right in the face or you could, you know, get a wild pitcher and being a kid really quick who has no reflexes. So there's danger, but we can fix that by having during practice, let's have three different groups, you know, and I've always said this in travel sports, it should be treated like the NCAA. I got a division one, I got division two, I got division three. And just be honest with what your team is. And if not, we'll make the decision for you when we see you play. Now we get kids at more of an even level. They can play. And we have to devalue the trophy. Because when they look at it, we're just trying to get them in. Let's play and compete just like we would at the park when I grew up playing in the streets, you know, or the parks for basketball. You know, hitting, you know, if you won, you won. Good. But when it was over, it was over. Now unless you win a trophy, it was a failure. I'm like, wow, oh, it was, what a great experience. So definitely uh, can be corrected. Just have to have a committee of people or dads or moms who are willing to sit down and say, let's do it like this. Let's, this is for the kids. We need to be maybe organizing for them because they don't know how to organize it, but then let's get out of the way and let them learn and have fun. Oh, there's so much gold there. So 
we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna finish with a final question here. And and, and again, I think you could probably go on for days on this one. But um, <laughs> so let's say you had this opportunity to 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 look at sort of the sports model in general, and you could yep. blow it all up, and you could rebuild it. And you were in charge of trying to create this path for youth athletes all the way up through, you know, middle school, high school, maybe even college pro. What would that what would that look like to you if you could be in complete control? Yeah. So I've always said this when I was younger, it used to be more this way. The coaches at the school worked pretty closely with the recreation centers. So if they were going to do like the rec centers did your summer stuff or in your spring or whatever, they, they work together. But what I would do is make sure, first of all, we have an appropriate middle school program. Like there should be sports for all kids in middle school. Try to get A and B level, because if you get 30 kids that come out for a program and you can't keep but half, let's get a B team. And let's try to get other schools to do the same thing so we can still have games going on. And then... I want the, the, like what we call travel, the, I, it's off season stuff, basically what it is. I think we just have to be okay with saying, hey, we got six weeks, six weeks, let's go, let's play. Ninth grade and up is for your traditional travel, okay? High school, they're looking, maybe they want to get seen at an event, which I don't know always happens, but if we're going to, we got to appease some of them, we can do that. But then, the, but I think we need to keep things on a local level, in a regional level, two hours and less or less. But for the kid, like the LeBron James, you know, Bronny and his kids, who you know are going to probably be professional players at some point, I have no problem with them going to Orlando or flying to Vegas and playing in these big tournaments. But but that's such that's the one percenters. Everybody else needs local to regional um, tournaments in leagues, six week leagues, and then move on from it. Go to another sport, give the kids a chance to do something else. If you wanna maintain time in a specific sport, that's when we have camps and clinics run by the schools and or the rec centers. And they have these camps and clinics. Again, they're local. You can have competitions during the week of the camp or the clinic or whatever. But what we have to do is let parents and kids know Sports shouldn't consume your youth. It shouldn't take away your chance to go to a birthday party to your best friends because you're always in a hotel. Shouldn't take away your chance to go to a swim party or a, you know, an event. So my model, and I actually have a manual that's being written right now on just that, how to run small side games. So for basketball, three and three, you can do that for volleyball. You can do that for other sports. It just size varies a little bit. And then um, how to run a uh, like a tournament, five on five or three on three tournaments, one day, two hours or less away, no more than a couple hundred dollars for the team to entry, five dollars or less for people to get in the door. All the money goes to that facility so they don't charge us a lot. And we go there, we play, we go home, have dinner with the family, and then you got Sunday off. Or if you play on Sunday, you got Saturday off. That would be a start. And then there's a lot of other little details that maybe on a part two, we can dive more into it. But I think we just have to say that model probably will develop your kid's potential more because you bought emotional space for them. Because right now the emotional space is taken. It's gone. They just don't have it anymore. Like they go to these long weekend tournaments. It takes till Wednesday before they actually get reoriented back, you know, from physical and mental soreness and disappointment. 
for often many of these kids. So, so that's kind of what I would do. I'm all for it. You got my vote. I'm in. I'm in. Where do we sign up? I'll sign the petition right now. Great. That's uh, we need it too. <laughs> uh, uh, this has been spectacular. And so I, the whole time is, is, you know, Mike said he's taking notes. I'm taking notes in my head and I can't wait to listen back to it to, to learn more. But if, if people want to learn more and get more engaged and, and cause you, you touched on, on a lot of different things that we want to go deeper down the rabbit hole, what's the best way to, to kind of get started and learning more of this stuff like from you. Like. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. First of all, this felt like it was five minutes. I'm not kidding. This hour flew by. It was like, <laughs> I literally looked at the time. I'm there. I'm like, holy cow, that was that fast. Um, yeah, no, if they go to leetaf.com, they can pretty much find, you know, all the kind of stuff we do and offer. And then our social media is on there, but anything at leetaft, I try to get stuff out there every day just for people to think about and become a little bit emotional and, you know, decide for themselves, but I think that's what we need. And then, um, um, you know, I'm, I'm really good at getting back to people. They can reach out to us. And again, all the stuff's on leetaf.com and they can reach out. And uh, I'm always glad to help uh, coaches and parents and athletes, you know, with whatever their needs are. I'll definitely, definitely take that advice and follow him. I've been following you for a long time, Lee, and I plan to do it for, for a long time coming. So thank you again that. for your time. This has been awesome. Uh, this is the Principles of Performance podcast. Thank you again, Lee. Thank you, Michael. Enjoy. We'll see you on the next episode. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.